world seems to be dominated by powerful and wicked people, groups, and nations, doesn't it? I mean, think about it. Around the world, governments like the Communist Party in China oppress and persecute the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Afghanistan, the Taliban just swept in and took control, causing many of the Afghan citizens to live in fear, especially the women. Here in America, secularism seems to be gaining ground and Christianity seems to be fading into the shadows, doesn't it? causes Christian parents to to fear for their children as they grow up in a culture that no longer tolerates biblical norms. It seems like powerful and wicked people and groups and nations are dominating the world. So my question is, what's God going to do about that? What's God going to do about those who are using their power and their wealth and their influence for wicked purposes? And and maybe a second question. What does God say to the church in China? To the women in Afghanistan? To the fearful Christian parents in America? Well, our sermon text today, God has a message for both, both the powerful and those who are being dominated by them. My prayer as we study this text is that God's message will teach us to fear him and not be afraid of anything that seems to have power over us. Can I say that again? So my sincere prayer as we study this text today is that God's message will teach us to fear Him and not be afraid of anything that seems to have power over us. Our sermon text, as was read just a moment ago, is Isaiah chapter five, uh, chapter 10, verse 5 through 34. Would you please take your copy of God's Word? or maybe the Bible at your feet, and and lay that open in your lap. We've already read this text, but I'm going to be going through this text and talking about the meaning of it and the application of it to our, to our lives. Isaiah 10, verse 5 through 34, is an oracle of judgment against Assyria. Now that might feel rather distant to us. We don't really feel what Israel and Judah felt about Assyria, but back in that day, Assyria was the reigning superpower in the world. And they were wicked. They were godless. They were bloodthirsty and violent people who were ravaging their neck of the woods in a desire to build their own empire. 
Assyria, back then and there, dominated the world. And they've set their sights on Israel and Judah. And so God has a message about Assyria and to his people. Two messages from God. You'll notice that this text is divided in verse 5 through 19, God's message about Assyria, and then verse 20 through 34, God's message to his covenant people. We're going to hear both of those messages. Because I want to know what God says about those wicked and powerful forces, groups, people, and nations that seem to be dominating the world. And I want to know what God says to his people who feel sometimes powerless in their path. So first, God's message about the Assyrians, verse 5 through 19. He makes two major statements in this text, verse 5 through 11, and then verse 12 through 19. In verse 5 through 11, God's first statement, and I encourage you to write this down. God's message, his first statement about the Assyrians is this. Even though the Assyrians arrogantly think that they're in total control, I'm using them to accomplish my purposes. (laughs) Now who's the superpower? (laughs) Let's listen to that statement again. Here's God's first statement about the Assyrians, the superpower. Even though the Assyrians arrogantly think that they're in total control, I am using them to accomplish my purposes. That's in verse 5 through 11. So one of the important lessons that we learn from this text is that behind every event, whether it's global or personal, there's always the agenda of God and the agenda of man. You recognize that? That God is so sovereign that he rules, he works, and he overworks in every event that happens on planet Earth, both globally, nationally, and even personally. And there's always two wills going on. There is always the will and agenda of God, and there's always the will and agenda of man, whether for good or evil. And here in this text, we see both. God's agenda and man's agenda going on. Look at verse 5 through 6. We see God's agenda. Woe to Assyria, the rod or the club of my anger, God says. Assyria is just the club of my anger. Keep reading in verse 5. The staff in their hands is my fury. Against a godless nation, I will send Assyria. And against the people of my wrath, I command Assyria to take spoil and seize plunder and to tread them down like the mire of the streets. God's agenda is to use Assyria as his club, as his staff, to unleash his fury against some very wicked nation. Who is it? 
Well, it's Israel. The nation that he just addressed in last week's oracle against wicked Israel. Do you remember that the relentless and unstoppable anger of God was being poured out against Israel because of their relentless and unyielding wickedness? God says the way that I'm going to judge my people is by taking, did you notice there in verse 6, a godless nation and send it against my ungodly people. Yeah, even though the Assyrians arrogantly think that they're in total control, they're just a club in my hands, God says, in verse 5 through 6. And then look at Assyria's agenda. So this is what Assyria thinks is going on. Verse 7, But he, Assyria, does not so intend, and his heart does not think so, but it is in Assyria's heart to destroy and to cut off nations, not a few. Yeah, they're bloodthirsty in their empire building. And so we see Assyria's arrogance in verse 8 through 11. Listen to the, the, uh, the boasting of the king of Assyria as he contemplates what he is doing in the world. Verse 8, the king of Assyria boasts, our, our might is so superior that the commanders of my army are the kings of all the nations that I've conquered. You see that in verse 8? Look in verse 9, that list of names there in verse 9. Those are all the nations in the cities in the north that are surrounding Israel, and that's that's Assyria's route that they're coming to conquer Israel. Kalno, Carchemish, Hamath, Arpad, Samaria, the capital of Israel, like Damascus, the capital of Syria, her ally. Every nation is the same to us. We just walk over them like they're nothing. We've conquered them all, says the king of Assyria. Look in verse 10 and 11, most arrogantly, Assyria is is confident that it can conquer Jerusalem, whose capital city is is the capital city of, of Judah, and Samaria, that is the capital city of Assyria. Assyria is confident that it can conquer God's people, Judah and Israel. Why? Because their God is nothing more than the impotent idols of all the other nations that we've conquered. See there in verse 10, the king of Assyria says, just like my hand has reached to the kingdoms of the idols whose carved images were greater than those of Jerusalem and Samaria, shall I not do to Jerusalem and her idols as I have done to Samaria and her images? This this nation of Israel, their God can't stop Me, says the king of Assyria, one by one I have conquered every other nation and all of their worthless gods. I will conquer Israel and their worthless god as well. Well, that might be their thought, but God says, Assyria, even though, even though you arrogantly think that you are in total control, I am using you to accomplish my purposes. Here's the big point. God 
is so God. He's so sovereign that he even uses the wickedness of men to accomplish his purposes. That's how big God is. So here's my question to you. How do you feel about God using wicked nations and wicked people to accomplish his righteous purposes? Is God complicit? When he does this? Well, there's a number of examples of this in the Bible. Do you know that God told Pharaoh of Egypt that he was using him to accomplish his purpose? In Exodus chapter 9, God told Pharaoh. You you remember the one who kept God's people in bondage and in slavery for 400 years? God said this to Pharaoh. For this purpose, I have raised you up to show you my power so that my name may be proclaimed in all the earth. God is so God that he uses wicked people to accomplish his righteous purposes. Uh, We could point out a number of other examples of this. But the ultimate example of how God uses wicked nations and people to accomplish his righteous purposes is in everything that happened to Jesus Christ on the cross. Flip over to Acts chapter 2 just for a moment. Acts chapter 2, verse 22. Peter was preaching a a sermon to the Jews at that day. And it was right after Jesus had, had been crucified on the cross dead for three days, rose from the grave, and now he ascended into heaven. And here was part of Peter's message to them. Look at Acts 2, verse 22. Men of Israel, you can just see him there, maybe standing on an elevated you know, balcony or something like that, preaching to a couple of thousand of people. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst? As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. See, the cross of Christ is the ultimate example of God being so big, so sovereign, so God, that he even used the wicked religious leaders of Israel and the wicked tyrant of Rome to accomplish his purpose to put his son to death on a cross so that Jesus Christ would bear the the wrath of God and the wrath of man and the sin of man to make salvation for all of God's people. But in that text, it was God's definite foreordained plan and it was their actions. 
That's how big God is. When we come back to Isaiah chapter 10, we see God saying to this wicked and arrogant nation, Assyria, listen, even though you think that you're in total control, I am using you to accomplish my purposes. Then his second statement about the arrogant Assyrians. Statement number two, verse 12 through 19. Then I will hold the Assyrians accountable for their arrogance. After I've accomplished my plan through them, then I will hold them accountable for their arrogance. Look at verse 12. When the Lord has finished using Assyria to accomplish his purposes in his people, then the Lord will, look at the words there, punish. Verse 12, the speech of the arrogant heart of the king of Assyria and the boastful look in his eyes. See, that's the essence of Assyria's wickedness, isn't it? It's not necessarily their bloodthirsty violence or their empire building, but from the Lord's viewpoint, it's their arrogant heart and the boastful look that drives everything that they do. From Assyria's perspective, again, verse 13 and 14, from Assyria's perspective, the king of Assyria boasts about his conquests. Look there in verse 13. By the strength of my hand, I have done it. By my wisdom, I have understanding. I, I, my, my. Self-exaltation. He says, going around and plundering these nations has been as easy as plucking eggs out of a bird's nest. That's how great and how glorious and how powerful Assyria is. From God's perspective, verse 15. From God's perspective, shall the axe boast over him who hews with it? Or the saw magnify itself against him who wields it? As if a rod should wield him who lifts it. Or as if a staff should lift him who is not wood. God says to Assyria, sure, you're sharp. You're sharp like an axe. But you can't do anything by yourself. You have no power in and of yourself. There has to be a lumberjack. You're the axe. I'm the lumberjack. You think you're in total control of your life? You're just a tool in my hand, says the Lord God of heaven and earth. And so verse 16 through 19, God takes action. God takes action to hold the Assyrians accountable for their ignorance for their arrogance. Verse 16, because of your arrogance, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to send something as small as a virus to cut down your strong warriors. Vast 
army. Verse 17, the God of Israel, whom you said was as impotent as the idols of the nations. The God of Israel, verse 17 through 19, is going to become a fire. Just look at the language there in 17 through 19. He's going to become a fire and burn down the glory of your forest with such devastation that when I'm through with you, God says, a four-year-old is going to be able to count the number of trees that are left. And God says, I'm going to do it in a day. It'll only take me one day. And God did. God did cut down mighty Assyria in a day. It happened at least twice, one in a prelude and then one in complete fulfillment. Isaiah records the prelude. Fascinating story. Chapter 36, mighty Assyria sets a besiege on Jerusalem of Judah. God's people. They've got it surrounded. King Hezekiah prays in chapter 37 that the Lord would protect his people even though they don't deserve it. And chapter 37, verse 36, the angel of the Lord went out and struck down 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when the people rose early in the morning, behold, there were all dead bodies. God cut down that glorious forest in a night with one angel. The fulfillment of all of this, though, was in around 629 when Assyria was completely defeated. Not to be heard from again. Even though the Assyrians arrogantly think they're in total control, I'm using them to accomplish my purposes, then I will hold them accountable. I will hold them accountable for their arrogance. Does that shed a little different light on the Taliban? Does that shed a little different light on that co-worker of yours who seems to have power and influence in the office and ridicules you because you're a Christian? Does that shed a little bit of light on the money moguls and the, the wealthy elite who seem to be able to get away with murder in their self-exaltation? God's got a different perspective, doesn't he? They might seem like they're accomplishing their will in our city, our country, and our world But God says, I'm going to accomplish my purposes through you, and then I will hold you accountable for your arrogance and your wickedness. See, the big point, my friend, is this. Every nation and every person will be held accountable for its posture before God. 
So just stop for a moment. Do a little bit of self-reflection. Can I ask everybody in the room to consider this? What is your present posture before God? Standing on your own two feet? Living as if God doesn't exist? Or humble and prostrate before Him as the God that He is? At the bottom, every non-Christian, whether atheist or religious, every single non-Christian, refuses to honor God as God and submit to Him as Lord. A, a person, for example, who doesn't credit the gracious providence of God for his success or, at work or his bank account or, or doesn't credit the providence and grace of God for, for her children and her health, for her intelligence and, and relationships, must look as arrogant in God's eyes as the axe that brags about cutting down a tree. Friends, it's, it's only the fool who says in his or her heart, there's no God. Or maybe doesn't say it, but lives like it. It's only the fool who says it matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I'm the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Only the fool. Only the arrogant. See, whether a person is blatantly refusing to bow their knee to God or whether she quietly lives as if God has no direct authority over her life. All human autonomy sounds like, quote, the speech of the arrogant heart and the boastful look of the eye to God. So non-Christian friend, whether you come here every week or whether secretly in your heart you just want to be anywhere else. Non-Christian friend, God is God and you're not. Your life started with God and your life will end with God. And everything in between belongs to God. So admit it. You've tried living your way and you've made a mess of your life. You live in shame and in fear because deep down inside, you know, you don't control anything. And now you have a choice right here, sitting in that seat. You have a choice. There's only two ways to live. Your way. Continue. Continue to refuse to honor God as God. Keep living your life as if you're in control of it. And the result, God will leave you alone and give you exactly what you want. While your life here might be great, 
Your life will end in death, and after that, you're going to be judged by God. You're going to be judged by, your, by God against your arrogance toward Him and your sins against other people. And you know your life and your heart is full of them. There's another choice. There's another way. It's God's way rather than your way. Submit to God's King, the Lord Jesus Christ. God sent Jesus to restore his kingdom in your heart and to rescue us from ourselves. Jesus honored God and lived the way that we were supposed to live. He sacrificed his life on the cross for you. He bore the wrath that you and I deserve against our sin. And when you come to Jesus in repentance and in faith, the result is this. God will forgive you of all of your sins, past, present, and future. You will be secured in an eternal covenant with God as one of his sons by faith in union with Christ. And Jesus will give you a new heart and his Holy Spirit to enable you to humbly follow him on the path of righteousness so that you can experience the blessings that God intended for you from the beginning. Non-Christian friend, let me just say this as plainly as I can. If you feel your heart being drawn toward God today, why don't you stay after and let's talk. Contact me this week. Let's sit down and talk about this. Approach your, your friend, your parents, your neighbors, and, and talk to them about your relationship with God. Because as we can see from this text, we don't want to be arrogant before God. God also has a message for His covenant people. Not only a message about the powerful and wicked, arrogant Assyria, but God has a message for those who are being dominated by them. His covenant people. And that we find in verse 20 through 23. Again, looking at the text, we see two major statements. From God to his covenant people. The first one is this. In verse 20 through 23, do you see that paragraph? Verse 20 through 23, God says this to his covenant people. Are you ready? I'm using the arrogant and wicked Assyrians to purify you. Do you get the irony in that? I'm using the wicked to purify my people. See, the Lord is using Assyria to accomplish two things in his people. Because there's two groups who are considered his people here right now. 
They're all Israel, but remember, it's Israel and Judah. And even within Israel and Judah, there are the true people of faith, the true Israel, Paul calls them in Romans, and then there are the merely religious, merely physical, biological children of Abraham that are Israel. So just because you happen to be born with an Israeli last name doesn't mean that you honor God and are going to heaven. Just because you're here in church or was you were born into a Christian family doesn't make you a Christian. Didn't in the Old Testament, doesn't in the New Testament, doesn't do it in the church. The people of God always have been and always will be by His grace and through faith. So all of Israel is not Israel. To the biological, merely religious, but wicked Israel, the Lord is going to use Assyria to destroy your relentless wickedness. As we explained last week from chapter 9, 8 through 10, 4. God's going to use Assyria to do that. Look in verse 22 there in this little section. Isaiah assures wicked Israel that the relentless anger and unstoppable judgment of God is coming through the Assyrians. Look at verse 22. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, and that that destruction, that judgment is, look at the verse, overflowing with righteousness. Isaiah says God is absolutely righteous and just to do this against his wicked people. And Isaiah, in verse 23, assures them that this judgment is coming and nothing will stop it. Look at verse 23. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as he decreed. But at the same time, the Lord is going to use wicked and arrogant Assyria to purify his covenant people of faith. That's exactly what God does all the time. God uses wicked people to purify our faith. Doesn't that just drive you nuts? Isn't it maddening? God, how can you do that? Look at verse 20. In that day, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. You see, God wants to teach his people to stop leaning on other nations and start trusting him. And God's going to use the wicked Assyrians to help Israel learn this lesson. The point is this, God uses wicked and arrogant people to purify our faith. See, God uses all kinds of stuff to teach us lessons, and man, he's got to do it because we need to learn a lot of lessons. Our faith is so weak and impure. 
We need to learn a lot of lessons. And most of the time, let's face it, we won't listen, so we have to feel. (laughs) And one of the best teachers is suffering. So God uses suffering to teach his people lessons. And do you know what form of suffering is very effective? Insufferable people. Think about your life. Think about the insufferable people that are in your life and how God has used them to rub off the rough edges, to teach you kindness and love and grace. God says, I'm going to use the wicked Assyrians to purify you. And that is his grace, my friend. And that's exactly what God is doing in us today. Romans chapter 8, Paul says, I consider the sufferings of this present time aren't worthy of being compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. Will be when? After we suffer a while. After God uses difficulty to, as Paul continues to say in Romans 8, cause us to reflect the image of his son because we know that for those who love God, all things, all things, all good things, all bad things work together for good. What good? That we might be conformed to the image of his son so that Jesus might be the firstborn among a whole family of his brothers that look and act and live just like him. Thank God that he uses wicked people to purify our faith. The next time you experience insufferable people, thank God that he loves you enough to work on you through them. And as he does... God has a second statement for you. Verse 24 through 34. I'm using the arrogant and wicked Assyrians to purify you, my people. Statement number two. So, you don't need to be afraid of them. In the end, I'm going to cut down the arrogant and wicked Assyrians, to nothing. You don't need to be afraid of them. I will cut them down to nothing. Look at verse 24. Therefore, says the Lord God of hosts, big God, God of the armies of heaven, Therefore, says the Lord God of hosts, listen to this tender message of comfort to his people. Oh, my people who dwell in Zion, be not afraid of the Assyrians when they strike with the rod and lift up their staff against you as the Egyptians did. For in very little while, My fury will come to an end and my anger will be directed to their destruction. 
in verse 26 through the end, 32, it's just a poetic way of saying that I know, I know that the march, the conquest march of Assyria feels inevitable. God's people there are surrounded by all those, look, look, See in 2028, 20, 29, do you see that in the text? All those names that Caleb did an outstanding job reading. That's why I had him read the text, not me. All those names, if you look on a map, guess where they are? They're all around Jerusalem. Every one of them. And Assyria says, I conquered this one. This city fell at my mighty hand. I left my luggage over here. And now I'm standing on top of the hill over here. And I'm looking down on Jerusalem, just licking my chops, waiting to to devour Jerusalem. But then, verse 33. Behold, the Lord God of hosts will lop the boughs with terrifying power. The great in height will be hewn down and the lofty will be brought low. He, God, will cut down the thickets of the forest with an axe and Lebanon will fall by the majestic one. Oh, my people. You don't have to be afraid of the wicked and arrogant nations, groups, or people. I'm using them to purify your faith. And then I will cut them down to nothing, says your God. So before we leave this text, I think we need to ask ourselves a question. Who's our Assyria? Who is our Assyria? Who are those who are powerful and wicked and influential, ungodly, that cause you to fear? Is it the Taliban? Pretty far away. We feel for those. We pray for those. But we feel separated from this. Certainly not Assyria. They're gone. Is it the secular culture that just seems to keep growing and growing and growing to where now you're afraid for your kids to grow up? Is it Somebody in your workplace, maybe your boss, that ridicules Christianity and causes you to fear? And they're powerful and they are wealthy and they're influential and they cause you to feel small. Is it a neighbor who picks fun at you for your religion? And every time you're in a conversation with somebody, they... This neighbor makes sure that everybody knows, oh, they're, they're too religious for that, or they probably think down on you because of this, or maybe a family member that has ostracized you because of your faith. Who's your Assyria? All God's people. 
you don't need to fear them. God's purifying your faith through them. And then when God's done, that arrogant one will look so small standing before the judgment of a holy God. What does it look like to not fear, but to live with this kind of confidence in God? What does it look like? Well, if it's a person who has made themselves your enemy, it looks like not retaliating, but loving them instead. If it's a a moral enemy, like in our culture, and when you fear for your children, it, it causes you not to not to back away from the scriptures, but to train your children up so that they have a confident, solid faith rooted in the word of God that is unchanging. If, if it's a gospel enemy, it's not compromising. It's not changing, not hiding, not, not camouflaging your face, your faith, but it's, it's boldly living. Wait a minute. That's different than arrogantly proclaiming. It's boldly living who you are so that on the day of judgment, God says to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. Even as your heart is broken over this arrogant one over whom he will say, depart from me, you worker of iniquity, I never knew you. It causes you to live and pray and beg God for his gospel grace on gospel enemies just like you. Friends, I have one last application. Our greatest enemy is not a nation or a group or a person. Our greatest enemy is death and hell. And just like God said, I'm going to use Assyria to accomplish my purposes in your life, but you don't need to be afraid. I will cut them down to nothing. Friends, God is using death and hell to accomplish his purpose. And then God will put them away forever. And he's already done it through the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Christian, you don't need to be afraid because the Lord Jesus Christ has defeated all of our enemies through his cross. Let's pray together. God, we celebrate your sovereignty this morning. We celebrate your holiness. We celebrate your grace to us as wrath and judgment-deserving sinners. And instead of pouring out the judgment that we deserved on us, you poured it out on your Son. That's how much you loved us. 
And I pray that you would make us vessels of mercy and grace to those that are around us so that we would make the gospel beautiful before them. We would pray for their salvation. God, please make disciples of Jesus through us. But give us a confident, courageous faith that trusts you for the ultimate victory and lives with no fear in this life. We praise you for all that you've done for us through the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.